two, one. Cinema. Uh, <laughs> I, I just said I got something before we did our sync up clap, and then that's what I came up with. That fucking. Um, so, ah, cinema Holy colon. Shit. And then just like fading out physically, like in the Back to the Future Polaroid. <laughs> um, but like. I, mean, I, I was telling the horses earlier, and I'm not going to get into the actual details of it on the pod, but suffice to say, I've had a remarkably um, rough couple of weeks. A lot of family shit going down, a lot of personal stuff going down. Just been a, you know, overall one of those times when, you know, shit just rolls downhill. Everything seems to sync up that could cause a problem in your life. And there's, I've been reading this book of short stories, short horror stories by this author, Thomas, uh, Thomas Ligotti, Ligotti, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, he's very indebted to Lovecraft, but also sort of supersedes him in terms of how effective and, and creepy everything is. And uh, mm. I think that's because a huge part of his philosophy, as outlined in a book called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which I have not read but really want to, um, his central thesis is uh, essentially that like human consciousness is not all right. Um, we evolved the way that we did through a variety of quirks and circumstantial things that eventually led to the prison of human consciousness, which is um, essentially unfair. And I want to read that book very badly because I take a great deal of comfort in that idea. And after having these awful couple of weeks... I watched this movie and felt that same sort of like pulling me out of like this this uh, black swamp of uh, self obsession and uh, contemplation of like death and relationships and shit, um, and like seeing something that was just so like I've fallen in love with these two people and now we have to see them behave as like um, a real functional couple in ways that are often upsetting kind of uh both enlightening in like a you love to see it sense and also enlightening in the physical feel less burdened sense like a movie that is objectively huh. kind of a bad time to sit through just came at the exact uh, bad time of my life to sit through <laughs> in a way that i feel a lot like i feel a lot better after watching that i don't know that oh, was a pretty self-indulgent good. weird way to start the episode no but like, no, damn, no no i, I, I feel the fuck out of that like i had a weirdly great time watching a movie that i think if i had came to it any other time it would have really upset me still in like um a you know this movie is good way but like rather Mm -hmm. than being upset i was just sort of like ah (laughs) there's there's something there is something whatever the opposite of psychologically burdensome is about the this idea that this is what happens to them and what is going to continue to happen with them maybe i don't know affirming maybe now now your problem yeah (laughs) not my fucking problem Let's do fucking before 2 a.m. in nine years. I mean, fuck it, right? Everybody up top, let's go. Before Red Eye. Y'all go work on your shit. Y'all go, okay, one of the greatest couples in the history of cinema. Why don't don't you go deal with despair? (laughs) Fuck you. 
did I tell you did I say this on either of the previous two episodes that um I was describing this movie and Savannah Savannah thought the film before sunrise was called before breakfast <laughs> no <laughs> what it's just sounds of gulping coffee and morning farts <laughs> <laughs> and Julie Delphi has a line where she says before breakfast in this movie and Savannah pointed at the screen like that picture of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> so crazy. She said the title of the movie. I love when characters do that. <laughs> um, it's oh, Before Breakfast. It's a movie about having really fucked up breath. <laughs> it's it's a movie. It doesn't translate that well in film. You know what I mean? No, it doesn't. But I think it's powerful filmmaking when you can kind of transmute, like, yeah. What does bad breath feel like? Feel mm-hmm. like, yeah. You and know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, exactly. Yeah, and it it's looks like, like stinky. <laughs> it looks like <laughs> Ethan Hawke. <laughs> Actually, it looks great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> this he breath has aged great. well. He looks like he can have morning sex without getting hangry. <laughs> he does. He does. I envy that. Welcome to Dead Horse, a podcast about overextended and uh, under-discussed film franchises. We've already really run the gamut here. <laughs> <laughs> we really um, have. Well. I'm trying to put myself in the headspace. We had a lot of stuff come up, you know, in trying to record this. A lot of life stuff. And so yeah. we, I watched it a week ago, and then I watched it again last night. And the, my two experiences watching it was kind of interesting to me. But what I will say is I willingly ran in front of an 18-wheeler speeding <laughs> down a highway and just let it pummel me. Just let it fucking flatten my brains. My little stupid, stupid brain. Yeah. I, I, I really kind of vibe with what you're saying, Dixon. Not necessarily because I was personally in a really tough spot, but if I can just zoom out. Yeah. Um, I'm like gonna have to try not to cry on this episode. (laughs) I'm, like, already struggling. This movie um, had a really big impact on me. It made me feel very personally seen in a way that was, like, really uncomfortable, actually. But Mm -hmm. really comforting that I'm not a fucked up freak. Love is valid even when it looks really unappealing from the outside and it's all about the choices you make moving forward Mm. it's all about Mm. the the whether or not you say yes to like the connection you know and um there were so there I, i literally don't even know how to talk about this because there's so many themes and it's like so richly dense with like Things I'm not smart enough to talk about, but what I will say is this movie is one of the most heartbreaking ones I've ever seen, but really, really hopeful as well. And that combination just like 
I don't know. It, it made me want to make my own films. You know? Wow. Yeah. Um, and I, I really can't be hyperbolic about this. I sent another photo. I think I put this in the last episode, too. <laughs> to PJ. I think. Unless I sent it to both of you. I sent it to both of you the first, the last one, but this one. And it's just the same thing where my face is just like, looks like a, like a pimple someone popped. <laughs> <laughs> afterwards because i just had cried so much and um i just think when real artists come together and tell such a meaningful story i will cry about it (laughs) do you guys think i I liked it (laughs) (laughs) three and a half out of five stars (laughs) i mean this is this is one of the first times that we've watched something and I'm like I really wish I could zoom back to the first time I saw it. Um and I wish I were just watching it now for the first time with the two of you so that my reaction could be that fresh. Cuz this is one of those times where I actually don't think it's all that helpful for me to have this like zoomed out analytical like IMDb trivia brain about a movie because you know there's there's plenty to discuss with the craft of this movie which does not make a spectacle out of itself but is um impeccable but the th- the 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 thing that I think is most appropriate to talk about is just the um how unbelievably truthful and emotionally intelligent and perceptive and mature and real this movie is about relationships and the difficulty of them the um, kind of the inevitability of that difficulty of that conflict that happens even between two people who are they they are the loves of each other's life that even within that like it's it's going to get fucking ugly sometimes um and all all the emotional substance of that is i i think the thing that's like worth talking about here i i think these movies are a perfect example of like the specific is the universal um because i i think it would be really easy to point out the things about these characters and the point of view that it's being told from that are not universal these are um extremely white movies they are decidedly very heterosexual um they are very 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 cis gender normative in in a way that i don't think is negative and i i would like to talk more about later like i i think a conversation about gender in these movies would be like really i think that bears a lot of fruit um and, you know, yeah, like, we're not all, like, famous authors who can go to the, the Greek Peloponnese for, like, weeks at a time um, and live in paradise and just kind of hang out and muse about books that we think would be fucking cool, man. Um, but there are moments in this movie, um, particularly the fights, that I... I, I think it would be very, very difficult for anyone who's ever been in, like, a long-term relationship 
whether you're in one or you used to be in one, I think it would be very, very difficult to not find something from your own life that gets mapped onto this movie um, and deeply, deeply, deeply fucking felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the, the first of the trilogy where the ticking clock isn't like um, anything external. Like in the first one, you know, Jesse had to... Uh, had to you know get back on his train to make his flight and the second one jesse had 90 minutes to make it to the airport to get to his flight and this one the the like ticking clock is just like when you know this is just a movie about uh two people on the day when they're willing to sort of bust out each other's nuclear codes like you get the sense that they had definitely had some like you know very intense and visceral fights before this one but like uh, you know there's that scene in the car where julie delpy celine um like marks it like today is the day like today is the day when everything starts to crumble and like from that point on it's just the the clock is just winning within themselves like when are they going to sort of like bust out their nuclear options um on each other because they both i can't remember which review i read of this but um i think maybe it was on roger ebert although i think he had uh i think he was dead i think this dude died (laughs) um but uh whatever reviewer it was said um that these people both have degrees in each other at this point Mm. absolutely yeah and and when do you see a movie like that (laughs) you know yeah yeah, like like a, a movie in which not in which not only the characters but the actors themselves have like a perfectly documented well on which to draw from yeah. which to draw rather, and that we all saw as well, you know. Yeah. Like not only is it because they've worked together for like almost eight. What? What? How many years is it total? 20 27 no wait no 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 20 yeah Yeah, i keep wanting to do that too yeah i think i multiplied by nine three times even though there's just two nines between things (laughs) it's 18 yeah yeah they they shot the first one 94 they shoot this one in 2012 it's like how six through ten is technically five numbers and it's like that's bullshit (laughs) i hate that fact and i think it's actually fake um um i just had to count on my hands to make sure i was right like i couldn't even i was like i just i just trusted you fully i was like no i know that problem and i hate it too um (laughs) it's even more confusing because like you know that particular grouping of numbers it's like the number seven is a girl (laughs) right the number eight is a boy absolutely nine is a girl ten is a woman um and then (laughs) six is uh non-binary and it's just like really that feels like it should be all together it feels like it should be like seven <laughs> i feel that. like six <laughs> is a little no i feel like six is a little fucking 11 year old like pre-tween who like loves jawbreakers and a boy sorry i need to be so clear <laughs> i think i think six is a little afraid of seven <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to Dead Horse. All right. <laughs> All right. Why is no one asking why? <laughs> Not much, dog. How about you? 
I'm not curious to know. I don't. <laughs> there might be a story, but I don't need to know it. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's a good summary time now. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a great summary time. I mean, yeah. we. If you're listening to this episode, you already know what you're listening to. You know what our show is. You know what this franchise is. You know what these movies are. And you probably even know what this one's already about. But in case you don't, um, we are three friends living on different parts of the East Coast, um, working within arts and entertainment in different ways from different angles, um, who all love film and comedy and storytelling and each other and keep doing this thing against the odds, uh, against convenience or timing or money um, because we're interested in what happens when you make uh, additional installments to a medium <laughs> that belongs in single units. And Such once upon a, a time... Such a specific interest. <laughs> we love additional installments, don't we, folks? <laughs> People talk to me We've, about one-offs, and I'm like, I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, where is Tar 2? Okay? <laughs> where is Tar 5, Tar's Haunted Christmas? Then I'll fucking watch it. Okay? Where is Tar uh, Blood Wars? <laughs> <laughs> where is the Fableman's Rise of the Lycans? Um, we're reviewing... A trilogy that makes an artistic case for sequels, um, each made nine years apart, and they are stories about an American guy and a French guy who met on a train in Whoa. 1994 <laughs> in Vienna. <laughs> Did you say French guy? I let me have my head cannon. They're both boys. An American guy and a French girl met on a train, and their lives were irrevocably different from the second they started talking to each other. Um, they met, thought they'd meet up again. They didn't. They finally met up nine years later after he had written a book about her and she found him. Um, and then right when he was supposed to get on a plane, she sang him a waltz and he decided to change his entire life. They shut the curtains. He missed his plane. They fucked for four days. And... Years later, he is divorced. He is managing, co-parenting of his son, Henry, who lives in America. He lives in Paris with his wife, Celine, and their two beautiful not twin wife. daughters. Not wife. Not wife. They're not married. I'm doing great at this. You are doing great. That was just one I'm small doing great. detail. It's like two small details. I'm fucking it. So <laughs> oh, yeah. you did say Celine was a Frenchman. Well, right. Well, right. So they go to the <laughs> they go to the Greek Peloponnese. Um, they are on vacation with their girls, um, and they have one more night to spend before they are going to go back. And they are stuck staying at this hotel in paradise. But every mundane little bit of tension in their lives. A big piece of which is Jesse's concern that he is going to miss out on some very key years with his son, Henry. And that that might be because of this marriage, not marriage, this partnership that he has set up with the love of his life. Um, that all of these things are bubbling to the surface and it all culminates one night in a hotel room. 
You know what's a much shorter summary of this movie? A couple goes to a hotel and they fight. Mm-hmm. That's the movie. The movie is about a fight that a couple gets in. And if you hear that and you're not like, wow, I'm dying to see that, you could be forgiven. Um, but what takes place is um, the culmination of an incredible, incredible adult story about love and relationships and uh, and making it work that blew a fucking hole through me. Yeah. Um, I want to ask y'all something. Do you, off the top of your head, without looking, <clears throat> do you remember the first thing that Celine says to Jesse the day they met on a train on its way to Vienna? Do you remember the thing she says to him that gets their conversation rolling? Um, like wait, the like first thing the she first ever thing says? She said. Well, the first thing they say is, did you hear what that couple was fighting about? And she says, no, I don't speak good German. Yeah. But then they go off to their, their own separate corners and she says, wait, this guy's hot. Let me try something. And she starts a conversation with a fact she read. Oh, yeah. That uh, I think, isn't it like the couples just can't hear each other as they get older? Um, That's right. Men no. lose the ability to hear the, yeah. <laughs> she says... Have you ever heard that as couples get older, they lose their ability to hear each other? Supposedly, men lose their ability to hear higher-pitched sounds, and women eventually lose hearing on the low end. I guess they sort of nullify each other. And Jesse says, yeah, I guess it's nature's way of allowing couples to grow old together without killing each other. Oh my (laughs) god. Doesn't that feel planned? Yes! Well, it feels... Yes! It feels feels as inevitable as something that really happened. That's crazy. I am so moved by that. I completely forgot that. And I'm also moved that Celine said that first. I forgot that she did that. She's so cool. She's Um, so fucking cool. I love Celine. Celine is epic. (laughs) <laughs> Celine actually is hardcore. Um, <laughs> uh, that was all really beautifully put, PJ. Um, the summary and Thank you. also what a beautiful thing to bring up is like in their genesis is the inevitability of suffering, right? Is that Ugh. to be together is to compromise and to compromise is to suffer sometimes and to it doesn't always fit well and it doesn't always work right and because we are thrown on this like very crazy love story that you just don't even know if it's gonna happen i'll tell you what when i was watching this movie i should maybe i shouldn't have been i was completely shocked I don't know why I was shocked. I just, it after two movies of them not being together and not finding it, I was blown away, like screaming at the TV when he was with Celine and he lived in Paris and he was dropping off yeah. his son. I yeah. was gobsmacked that this is where we're starting from because it's genius because that's where it should start because of course that's yeah. how it happened. But for, 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 
us to be thrown into the dusk of their relationship, you know? Like, to miss the, the honeymoon part and to jump into what's hard, I think my brain couldn't handle it. I was, like, completely devastated and, like, thrilled, you know? Um, Mm. and I just thought, I don't know, there's something very validating about watching this, don't you think? Yes. Well, I think, I think, sorry. Sorry, I'm still, it's delayed. We know, you know, it's okay. Um, I, I think, like, part of what makes it, like, gratifying is, like, I think that the first two movies, um, like there is, there is, uh, inarguably, or I suppose you could argue this. Uh, it to me, like the first two movies are filled with with truth, with verisimilitude. Um, this one, I think, is the most realistic. Like the first, the first one especially has this kind of like fairy tale angle to it, where like these strange sort of you know, wayward fortune tellers and poets, like, uh, knife their way into their story to give, like, oblong advice or words to them and then sort of, like, glide out. And they make a very strange proclamation that they will not exchange contact information and will just do this. And the second one, it's a bit more stripped down, but it, it still does have this sort of, like, very, like fairy tale feel to it um that this one i think all but abandons um this is the first of the three movies where like other people are in scenes this is the first this is the first of the three movies where there is like substantial dialogue between um jesse and celine and um other people respectively like there's a scene where celine is in the kitchen um, talking to all of the women on this vacation, they're in like a guest house of a writer's retreat. While I want to be there, Je- I know me too. I I want to be. I want to get together with the boys and sort of like half roll my sleeves up and like have an idea that's like sounds kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I want to slice tomatoes with these women in a Greek kitchen. <laughs> I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Um, They're side characters. We're, yeah. we're we're seeing people outside just the bubble of these two. Yeah, yeah, and and so like it, it it takes on a degree of like actual. You know this this is a day that ends up incredibly heightened and in, and potentially incredibly important, but it doesn't start as one. I mean, it it starts as like a you know last day of a vacation, which is something, but it isn't like meeting who may be the love of your life on a train, and you've got a day to get to know her. Or ten years later, the person the person who you fell in love with at first sight has sought you out. This is like a day that could happen. You know, obviously, if we were a little richer, but like circumstantially this is the situation that we may very well find ourselves in whereas the first two were like um built on 
an extreme kind of romance that not a whole lot of people experience. Yeah. The first one is the dream, right? And the second mm-hmm. one is is you know the moment before the happily ever after. It's like we win. And then this is like what it really is actually. This is what it really was all along. Um and there's something so painful about that that even they could go through this, you know? And the way that the actors portray it, it's almost not surprising. You're like, how didn't I see this before that they were going to fall into these patterns because they're two very passionate people and of course there would be these resentments and these inability to to see and hear one another. Like, of course that would happen. And I don't know, it's just so expertly executed where you're like surprised and you know it, it's familiar at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you said something. I, I just want to hop in because Becky said something that is very, very close to Ethan Hawke's like exact words in his summary of what he thinks the trilogy is. Hawk says that Before Sunrise is a film about what might be. Before mm-hmm. Sunset is a film about what could or should be. Yeah. And Before Midnight is a film about what is. Oh. And maybe Ethan there's a maturity to that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he um, never visits you. It's it's fine. He's never going to get these years was, back, man. That was the tagline to Boyhood. Ethan is my dad. Becky was saying something earlier about the moment that this story begins on you know our opening shot is two pairs of feet but it's not Celine and Jesse it's Henry and Jesse Um, Henry his extremely normal American (laughs) son played by a kid named Seamus Davy Fitzpatrick, who I didn't realize until I looked it up. This kid played Damien in the 2006 remake of The Omen. Damn, good for him. Good for for him. Now giving a very naturalistic, grounded, good and real kid performance as just, just a kid with an iPhone and a backpack who does not attach the same level of significance to this parting that his graying father does as his dad sends him off on a plane back to the States. And he watches his son go off. And what does Jesse Wallace know how to do but say goodbye to someone he wishes he were going to spend more time with? Fuck. And he watches him go. And first thing I want to say... We hear the first notes of a score, which is the first time that one of these movies has had this. It's by a guy that Linklater started working with in the early 2000s named Graham Reynolds, an Austin-based composer. The score for this movie is very simple, but very perfect. It is a duet, two instruments, piano, guitar, and they're playing a waltz. Shut up. Yeah. (laughs) It's a waltz. I'm an idiot. That makes me feel no. dumb. No. That just makes you, me feel dumb. 
don't feel dumb. This thing it's isn't supposed so to. It's just so good. Becky so didn't good. even know the score was a waltz. <laughs> it's not even that I didn't know it. It's that they did it at all. <laughs> I bet you didn't even know what time signature it was written in. You so <laughs> you probably thought it was six eight. It's actually three four. <laughs> you fucking fool. So so before Becky came in and didn't even know the fucking waltz. <laughs> Jesse walks out of the airport. The waltz is playing, and he ambles up to a car, and there is a bored woman leaning on a car waiting for him out of focus. And who is it but the fucking love of his life? This movie, I can't imagine what a viewing experience this would be for someone who hadn't seen the first two, because there are all of these tiny mundane details in this movie that wouldn't feel like anything if you were just seeing this as its own standalone thing. But to us, people who have watched these two grow over the course of 20 years, there are these tiny things that feel fucking seismic. And the the, the baseline thing that these two star-crossed lovers are now taking each other for granted, are now used to each other, vexed by each other, bored by each other, is unthinkable and a very shocking thing to see in cinema you know the thing i kept thinking of is like what would it feel like if jack and rose from titanic if you made a sequel where they are in a suburban home picking fights with each other getting passive aggressive passive aggressive about who's gonna pick up the kids from soccer practice now that movie kind of exists it's called revolutionary road and it's like okay um, but seeing these, these, these two people that feel like cinematic legend to us, seeing them get annoyed with each other or seeing them meet other people, or even just seeing them acknowledge the existence of email, much less age. These are all things that feel like special effects within, within this yeah. movie. S- seeing them take each other for granted is is both it's like the thing they never got to do and now they've gotten to do it and there are consequences that come with that they yes. they did this they, they did this impulsive thing a couple years ago jesse bailed on a plane ride back to be with his wife and kid so that he could fuck a french woman for four days who he met nine years earlier imagine what that's like for his wife imagine explaining that to her fucked up that he bails on their marriage for her i i i can imagine she's not very sympathetic to this you know i How could she not understand she's, a... <laughs> <laughs> well, she's never seen before sunrise oh. <laughs> like if she, if she just you watched to, the movie the thing about it you gotta watch all of them <laughs> if she just listened to our episode about it i feel like she'd get it yeah so. i feel like she would give them joint custody of hank <laughs> <laughs> you gotta listen to this episode. <laughs> Tiny things in this movie feel very, very, very big. Even things like we finally get to see them fuck. And I, I don't mean that in like a like a like a horny way. I mean like within the context of these movies, seeing these two characters be sexually intimate with each other is really, really exciting. You wanna find out what 
you know, what does that look like for them? And there are moments where it's incredibly romantic and sexy and and there's a real charge to it. You get to see these moments where Jesse, a true author, is actually saying some stuff that's really romantic mm-hmm. and really sexy. He he feeds her these words about how he can't wait until it's over and they're lying next to each other and she's asleep and he can hear oh, her my. think. So um, romantic. But also all all of the things that they wanted to have that come in the territory with living a life together are also the shitty parts. It's also she's got to get up with her titties out and go over and answer a phone call, voice his frustration about something shitty she said, but also try to get back into the moment and it's not working and he can't let it go. Oh my God, can't they just save the conversation for tomorrow? Oh my God, the moment's ruined. All of these things that are, I've said this like 12 times, this isn't good podcasting, but um, tiny things feel huge here. Tiny things like she films the kids in the backseat while they're asleep and she films him eating their apple and he says, "Can can you please turn the fucking camera off? When that's happening with like one of the greatest the couple that was the center of one of the greatest screen romances of all time. It feels radical. Yeah. It is such a risk, yeah. right? To say, we're, we're actually not going to give you what you want. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> we're never going to give you what you want. We're going to challenge the fuck out of you and make you understand what actually this is about. It's not about peace and joy and, you know. Fucking. It's not about fucking. It's, this movie, I've never seen such an expert command of the way a fight happens and the way that it just melds away in certain moments because at the end of the day, you you two do love each other, right? And so sometimes in a certain moment, you both put your weapons down and you don't know why. There's no reason, but all of a sudden we're talking about something else. But you know what? That reminds me about this. And I'm still mad about that thing. And it comes back, this organic energy and spirit that is like powering this movie. Both of their misunderstandings of one another are what powers this film, I think. And, and Mm. like, the, how over time their perception of themselves and each other has become distorted, that is, like, the villain of this movie, right? Is their inability to really appreciate and see what's happening because life has gotten really hard. And something I'm Mm -hmm. really eager to talk about is the right and the wrong of that. Because watching their argument mm. i was mm. on both of their mm-hmm. sides yeah yeah um almost every sentence <laughs> yep mm-hmm. and as a woman in a hetero relationship with a guy that sometimes you know i don't see eye to eye with and i find it really difficult to like speak my truth to straight up another gender like that does do something you know and I just looked at Celine and watching her 
flail trying to communicate these things and not it it just not working or being the yeah. right quote yeah. unquote right way to do it not the effective way to communicate her feelings which is motherhood has taken away my identity crushed it and turned me into something else and i don't know who to be angry about that with because it's not exactly you Oof. but i am angry at you because i've sacrificed so much spiritually because on paper jesse has sacrificed so so much more you know but there is this Oof. intangible cost of being a mother yeah that i think is really impossible to explain to your your spouse your your male partner and I think a lot of that is physiological, like literally carrying your children and then like the literal way, like the brain chemistry is just yeah. like forever fucked after you have children. You just, women just tend to like not be able to think the same way, you know? They're not the same. Not that men don't change. I don't want to no. confuse anyone. But I just think that there is something really, really particular that happens when women give birth. And, and something I as an artist hurtling towards 30 unsure about what I want to do with my life and and who who I want to bring into it and if I want to make people it was really painful and beautiful to watch this stunningly independent savvy spirited unstoppable creature have uh have been made to be and feel small from something yeah. as beautiful as having children it is such a goliath of a of a character in the room you know is like the the oppressiveness the inherent oppressiveness and sacrifice of motherhood mm-hmm. and the way that she sort of mishandles that pain is really hard for me to watch because oh. it's not all his fault and 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 he has every right to mourn that his son is in another country and that he doesn't get to raise him but because she's so hurt by her circumstances and so misunderstanding even herself she hears everything he says about his own situation as an attack and i just think it's just all about miscommunication and like every person's perception of themselves and it was really hard to watch honestly yeah but the but within that like the miscommunications don't feel like contrived uh like one of the ones not that, at all one no, of the ones not at all that that really hit me was and was the, like a perfect i'm 50 50 with them um was when you know i think this is after like the fight sort of calms down a bit um after its initial stages and they start talking about like you know what it would actually cost to emotionally to to move to chicago to try to be with hank and um i think ethan hawk says of of like uh, being circumstantially forced to uh not forced but uh being circumstantially in the position where he had to leave to go to france because um celine giving birth to these twins was going to be very complicated and she wanted to be with family resulted in the ex-wife being able to take pretty much the whole of custody and move to Chicago. And he says, I just really fucked that up. And I completely empathize with like 
that loss and that like I've I've missed out on so much of raising this child who I love dearly and who is an amazing kid and I just like lost it and Celine hears you fucked up by coming to France to be with me while I did the hardest thing I will likely ever have to do and some yeah, yeah like it's it's just um exactly yeah like it's relatable might be the wrong word but it is it's just one of those things where there is so much pain and sorrow on either side that the that you're almost territorial about it you know Mm. yeah yeah everybody's right you know everybody's right when you really listen to them and then you listen to the other person, and you're like, they're right too. And it's just so difficult then to find a solution. Mm-hmm. And so, you, because you're so steeped in your point of view. Yeah, and so you start when you're in fights like these, like you were saying, Becky. It's a really expertly. Th- there are those moments you're saying where, um, w- you know, where everything like slows down a little bit, and maybe you get into the rhythms of a normal conversation. And eventually, if a fight is is bad enough, or just like steeped in personal circumstances that like no amount of empathy can overcome there just comes the point where you're everything starts to just get much more cutting and you are looking for any like tiny little weakness perhaps a mispronunciation or like the citing of a of an incorrect author to like jump in and be like haha gotcha you know your worldview bad (laughs) yeah and like you know i i haven't had too many fights like that but like that has certainly happened you know there's um there's there's this thing about this is what a a fight feels like between two people who are supremely vulnerable to each other and all throughout the fight they're they're constantly saying these things to each other that they need to have heard that they need to communicate to the other one that they need the other one to understand um but in the context of how tense circumstances have made things things that they need to say are are coming off as defense and offense sometimes intentionally and sometimes by complete accident Um, because these people just have so many new, um, pressure points, um, that they can really, really, really get hurt in. Um, and there's something about the way a fight with a couple, especially if there have been persistent challenges to, like, really good communication, um, someone will say something that they need to communicate, but it's something that they haven't communicated for a long time. And then when it finally does come out, it comes out as a weapon or, or it comes out in, in a way that is Dixon, like you were saying, like mechanized to Mm. get you some kind of ground with that other person. Um, and maybe it'll, it'll be something petty. Maybe it'll be something tiny. Um, like oh my god an incredible detail that i'm certain was a julie delpy choice is that all jesse can think to do in their argument 
is say that he wants to have an an unemotional, rational, logical conversation with her, which is the most fucking loaded... Triggering thing Mm. I've ever heard. (laughs) So fucking gendered. um, So fucking dismissive. So easily casts her as, like, crazy. And then the thing that she... And and yet, she is kind of like, I mean, (laughs) look, this is one of the things that I love about, I'm sorry, I know I'm going all over the place here. This is one of the things that I love about this trilogy in this particular movie is the evolution of the character of Celine and that she has gotten so fucking prickly and, and kind of fucking volatile and kind of unfair and kind of shitty. Yes, um, yes. She has gotten so much more bitter and and pointy. Um, sometimes to the point of profundity, there is um, trigger warning, because damn. But there there's a line where she says, the only thing that's good about being a woman over 35 is that you don't get raped as much. Um, that is just... She, she delivers it like a dry joke and, and Jesse knows Celine well enough to know that he can like chuckle in pain at that, but it's like it's so devastating. I mean, she... Becky did a, a really beautiful job at talking about how Celine is existentially horrified. At the possibility that motherhood and being Jesse's partner is going to be this surrender of all of the independence, very basic independence and autonomy um, that not only she needs as a human being, but on like a political and philosophical level as a feminist is very important to her and seems like it was very important to her parents um, and, and for that to, for that to be taken away from her, I think is, it makes me understand why she is like pointy at him, trying to get him to understand the gravity of, of what she is giving up, not just for this family, not just for the immediate family that she has with Jesse and their two twin girls, but like, the compromises that she's going to have to make for this woman that he doesn't even love and this kid that she has nothing the fuck to do with and a country that she's never felt safe in or connected to, she might have to make some sort of horrible bargain with all of that and put not just her life and her professional career, but her herself on hold and I, I think it it really, really riles her up in... I'm sorry, this is slipping through my fingers. This is really hard. This is both no, a lot no, of ground to cover. you're saying so many good things. I, I appreciate that. I really hope they're coming together in something. There's... Okay. There's a moment... There's a beautiful ebb and flow to the fight that they have where... Sometimes they will be able to actually hear each other and communicate and be like, okay, wait, I hear you. Here's where I'm coming from. Let's bring this back down to zero. And they do. And it seems like things are going well. And then one person says something fucked up. 
and we're back into it again. And someone is doing the the emotional armoring and defense mechanism of putting their clothes back on. And Jesse er, and Celine walks out of the hotel room, slams the door, comes back a minute later. The first time she does that, she makes this confession about how the guilt of not knowing how to be a mom, the, the, the guilt of not knowing what the fuck to do with these two kids, especially while their father is like off in another country dealing with family number one and, 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 and like partner number one. The guilt of that and the mindfuck of that, the loneliness of it, made her contemplate suicide a lot. She says that she understands why Sylvia Plath wanted to stick her head in a toaster. Or an oven, if you're being pedantic and American and Ethan Hawke. And saying that to him takes guts. It takes unbelievable courage to admit that ever, but especially to admit it in the context of an argument where all this person can say is you are overheated and over emotional and unsympathetic to everything I've done for you. She puts herself at a lot of risk of getting hurt by saying that. And in a way she's kind of trying to hurt him by by saying, fuck you, this is what I'm carrying. Um, but all, all of these things that you wish they could just say to each other in a neutral, sorry to use a buzzword, but like a safe space is like, and and it, it feels like a real fight. It, reels, it feels like a real, a real, real fight. And it hurt. It is, mm-hmm. it is a real fight. I mean, oh man, there's so many good things you said, Peach. Um, Thanks. I really like, I just feel very emotional thinking about the validity to be more rational versus my feelings are valid and they are something and they should be heard. It's a battle I'm fighting very intimately, you know? Uh, I'm a very reactionary gal. And so watching this with such heightened stakes, you know, two people who love each other, um, and watching that particular element of communication, you know, being, like, weaponized, it's very hard to watch. And it's, it's hard because I watch Celine sabotage her own peace because there's a way for all of this to be heard if it's not released as an attack Mm -hmm. Um, because her feelings are valid but I understand why it's so hard for him to hear her is because it is almost violent she wants to harm him she wants to harm him for a lot of these conversations. I think there's one point that he she says, "You're fucking nothing like Henry Miller." Like nothing like I think it was like nothing about the way you fuck is special at all or something. Mhm. Uh 
And so watching her back herself into a corner with her fists up, it's just really hard for me to watch because I feel for her so much and I am her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah. And, like, that particular... Th- sorry. No, please. Like, that particular point in the argument, too, is a, another one of the ones we've been highlighting where it is, like, you know, the, the validity of each side, so to speak, is... Um, pretty accessible because it it comes at like the end of one of the sort of conversational ebbs where um ethan hawk has gotten comfortable enough to pour both of them a glass of wine um and what sparks that oh, barb is um you know uh is ethan hawk uh jesse talking about um seeing his seeing the twins fight on a trampoline and thinking that like that is the natural human state is being vaguely dissatisfied and uh celine says that's what you that's what you saw i i saw like a lot of beauty in fighting for you what you want and you know that kind of an interaction and jesse says well it's because you think anger is a positive thing and he's saying that in the context of this is like the low key we're we're over the hump of the fight and that's just like something i can bring into it and she motherfucker like she and that hits her like right in her heart and again it's like easy to see why he thought that could be like a continuation of the conversation in a low key like yeah we can talk about this kind over a glass of wine type way and it's easy to see why she heard that and thought like how the fuck could you say that to me um yes 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 all of it doesn't he say something even more brutal than that doesn't doesn't he say like she said he says you're fucking nuts yeah and it's funny she doesn't even argue it back that she's not you know like hmm she's just angry and wants other answers and he's oh man i don't even know i i can't even get into all of it it's all too brilliant um but something i i did want to bring up was like earlier before they get to their hotel room and things are still pretty sweet they're sitting watching the sunset and they're playing a little game where they they go still there still there still there as the sun sets and then it's gone and then she says gone and then they both they both feel the absence of the sun and it's really sad it's a really sad moment and then when they're fighting in the hotel i think celine makes a cup of tea and it steeps the whole fight it is steeping too long and i know that if either of them took a sip it would be incredibly bitter and it just it's really interesting to me these ideas of like how much of a good thing can one can you have in one lifetime can it stay good can you work through the hard parts for it to be good again um and this movie argues yes it can and this is just the hardest part this was the this was the hard one this was the big test this was the fight of the fights. This was this was the decision that Celine is faced with. Do you want to leave blame this person for all these miscommunications? I would argue that's what's happening. I think she's blaming him for all of her feelings when I think it is more complicated than that. 
And Jesse chooses to whimsically, annoyingly <laughs> go out on a limb and write her this goofy letter when she's just like she's ba- she just told him I don't think I love you anymore just the hard just the biggest stab in the heart and he looks that in the face and says I'm going to win her back I'm going to make her laugh and to and, me yeah. that is that's like oh that is just like the ultimate sign of like unconditional love right is to To not care if they don't love you anymore because you still love them. So you'll you'll fight for it until you're sure. And when she's, you know, she's pushing him away while he's trying to be romantic and he's just giving it his all in this, like, last moment, right? This, like, crescendo to the end. And she's like, did you hear me? I said, and he's like, that you didn't love me? Yeah, I guess, I guess you know, I thought, you know, it wasn't true, but if it is, then you know, well then fuck this, but if if you think that this isn't love, this is it. This is love. And it's just very beautiful because she just realizes he's right, you know. Um, and she changes her mind and she plays his game and they have a laugh and that's what fighting looks like in my life, you know. It's what it has looked like. It's just one person's courage to move past the ego that you're feeling. The the anger and the, the pride. And to just reach through that and be like, I love you more than I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's really yeah. beautiful. I mean, oh, it's very, very good movie. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. A minus. <laughs> it's no Underworld: Rise of the Lichens, but it'll do. Nothing is. Because <laughs> when they fucked, it wasn't on a cliff. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I like, and and that also like having what ultimately i was about to say resolves but it's not resolved but what ultimately ends the fight being um an extension of uh behavior of his that clearly um upsets her which is just like stay adding too many beats um to jokes to little bits that are about her um where he like you know they're talking and he like riffs a little on something some action that she did some supposed infraction that's clearly done in a joking manner and then he just kind of stays on it for like two or three beats too long past when she's been like okay and into like okay territory like that behavior um being something that eventually pulls them out of the current tailspin is really um yeah like exhaustingly relatable you know yeah i had a weird reaction to the ending of this um Mm. i think the reading that they accept that this is the work that is gonna have to go into 
this is the difficulty and and the work that is gonna have to go into it if this is the love of your life if this is the person you're gonna spend the rest of your days with there are gonna be fights this ugly um and you're gonna have to find a way out of them and you're gonna have to really really work in coming to the table and making compromises like this I accept that reading and I think it's beautiful and if they choose to not make a fourth movie which we can come back to but what would it even be before (laughs) (laughs) sorry um well I let's come back to that because I have ideas and some of them are kind of (laughs) dark um there's this moment where, you know, he has tried this romantic gesture of this this letter. He has he has tried to be, you know, the old Jesse, the 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 whimsical, hopeless romantic that she met on that train, who writes these romance novels that he can't write without her, that are about her. You know, he he tries to bring all of that back and he talks about time traveling. Oh, I'm coming from the future. Um, Tonight is going to be the best sex of your life. This is going to be the night that changes things for the better. He he pulls out all of the Jesse moves that he knows how to do and they're just not working. And he turns cold and he says, look, this is it. All right. This is fucking it. This is real love. It's not perfect, but it's real. Which in a way is kind of a mission statement for the whole movie you just watched. He crumples up his napkin and he throws it away and he says, I'm done. And they sit together at this table in paradise for a moment. Like a good long moment. You know, these movies are really good at these moments of silence, whether it's two people in a listening booth at a record store trying not to let the other one see that they're watching the other one or a long walk up a staircase as you know that you're inevitably gonna have sex with someone that you can't imagine your life without but have had to this is a moment of silence where they don't know what's gonna happen next for them or if there is a next thing and there is this look of heartbroken despair on Celine's face there is this tearful expression where she looks she looks trapped she looks really 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 hopeless and that's before she decides fuck it and indulges his his romantic game and the waltz starts up again and the camera starts to pull back and They start talking again and it turns flirtatious again. And in one of the most beautiful ending lines of a movie ever, she says, well, that must have been one heck of a night we're about to have. I think there is something very hopeful and beautiful about that, but maybe it's just um, my own baggage and my own fears about relationships and the possibilities of them that I brought to this and and my own sadness about that and my own 
We could talk for half an hour about what divorce means to this and what having divorced parents means for this and what it means for Jesse. I I found there to be something a little sad and hopeful at the same time. You know, they choose to live in the fantasy because choosing to believe in like crazy love that lasts forever, choosing to believe in like a love of your life is kind of the thing that they need to hold on to if they're going to be able to do the work. Um, but I... I mean, this is why I, I, I kind of sympathize... I think this movie's a fucking masterpiece. I think this is a perfect third chapter to what I think would be totally okay just being a trilogy. I think this would be a perfect final chapter to this story Absolutely. if they never pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I get why people don't fuck with this. I get why it leaves them cold because I see that look on Delpy's face, man. And all I can think is like, there's something kind of hopeless that like the best relationship she'll ever be in is, is also going to have this stuff happening that it's going to have fights and that it's gonna have these moments where you're like should I be with this person is there a right person for me out there am I am I slogging through this thing that isn't working because it's the best I'm gonna get totally dog I don't know I don't know I I, I found that to be God God bless you bless you I found that to be I, incredibly painful and difficult, even just in the ending note of it. I'm there, there are going that to that's be more fights. Saw. I'm. I love that. That's what you saw because I think I saw that too. Um, but I looked at it more like less like trapped and more like I felt like she's more trapped in her own conception of herself. And he's wow. giving her the option to come out of this very rigid idea of what her life is supposed to look like and be like, maybe we could do this together. Maybe we can try again. Yeah. And, I mean, it could be anything, right? We're not in her mind. We don't know how it felt in that moment. Um, but to me, there's something completely hopeful about it even if she felt trapped in that moment, right? Because she chose to come back and there's always room to work on it and to talk it through because as long as both parties are willing and both parties love each other, like, you kind of can't ask for more. Not not that you can't. Wow. I mean, obviously you would love to be in really Everybody would love to be in a relationship where you would never question whether or not you're supposed to be with that person. And I... God bless those people who feel that way for 50 years or what What was it? Jesse's grandparents were together for like 76, 76 years, years or something. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, but I think there's something intrinsically human about having to live with unknowns and bravely move forward and move through it together anyway. Like there's something really romantic to me about that. Um, that is romantic. And yeah, because neither person actually knows the answer. 
but we're just mm-hmm. gonna try. Um, but I love that you saw that too, PJ, because I think actually both can exist in the same world, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, what's what's that line from, from the first movie? Not the first movie. I think it's the second one. It's a memory is never finished as long as you're alive. I think I think that's one of the most hopeful bits of emotional maturity in these movies that I mean, not, not, not getting into it on here. I'm, I'm not giving all you little parasocial weirdos that many fucking windows into my relationships that have gone wrong. I've just been thinking a lot about, like... I mean, Becky, you kind of said earlier, like, what really matters is, like, what you do going forward and what you do next. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there there is a future for them. And I think... Mm-hmm. Gosh, I hope we get a, a before movie in, like, 10, 20 years. It's, it's called, like, I don't know, Before Catheter. <laughs> <laughs> before, before Beta Blockers. Um, where they are wrinkled and old and neurotic and scared and getting angry at food packaging because it's not how it used to be. And and I hope that even if they are still fighting, that they are still having, like, sex that you could write 500-page novels about and saying romantic stuff to each other and making each other laugh and she's being kind of vulgar and kind of challenging him and they're... And, and he's really loudly horny for her and constantly telling her how fucking sexy he thinks she is. I hope that's I hope that's still happening. You know, as long as there's there's more road ahead of them, I guess. There there are still all kinds of things that that relationship could be. And and maybe they'll find an all new groove. You know, maybe those girls becoming teenagers will command really good things out of the both of them but i don't know there's i really thought about divorce in the context of this movie um Mm -hmm. my parents had a, a really seismic divorce when i was 13 like it was it was like big um and those fights were pretty nasty. Um, my mom uh, was my dad's second wife, so he had uh, he had another family before before us because um, he was just setting up franchises. Because I, I think in the fifties, <laughs> that's a that's a line from Fight Club that I passed off as my own. But he uh, the 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 tension of of trying being a woman who's trying to like hold on to this family while you are not the only family that you're the man you're with has had is Mm. um can't fathom it i got a mom in that position i and i can't fathom it um yeah jesse says something in before so i didn't talk about it when we did the episode but he did something that i'd never heard anyone really word before he says that when his parents got divorced, he he grew to have this sense as a kid 
that he wasn't supposed to be born that that he was not meant to 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 exist because this couple wasn't meant to exist especially if you grow up in like a very christian household like a traditional white american christian hetero household you are instructed with this idea that every every two parents are you know god put them together to make you and god is going to put you together with one person because you're meant to make these people Mm -hmm. um that cuts like a knife by the way i don't i don't know if that's the case for every kid with divorced parents because like i've known people whose parents had really beautifully managed like amicable divorces there's there's someone I knew in college who um her parents divorced, married other people, and then the four parents spend holidays together. Oh like, wow. They all come together for like Christmas and Thanksgiving. That's I was stunning. I was there for a couple of them. It, it was it was kind of a game changer for me. So I'm there there are a lot of different ways that this can go. And breakups can be healthy and they can be amicable and your ex can be an incredible person that you love and respect and hold on to. But divorce can really I mean it it's 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 a motherfucker and I think it really changes when you're a kid. I mean there are studies done on this. It it changes your expectations of what relationships can be what what a marriage can be and how much hope there is for it 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 kind of instills yeah. in you this sense of like inevitability that couples just fight like that couples just break up and maybe that'll that'll make you too understanding and too accepting of fights that shouldn't be happening with a person you shouldn't be together with right um right that's very true or it'll it'll give you like this learned helplessness but the the thing that i kept reading into it with jesse was like you know jesse is still this hopeless romantic who writes these books about falling in love and coming together and and has really like concretely solidified his relationship with celine as so important to him that it's like the defining narrative of his literary career. I wonder if his like need to believe in romantic love that lasts for life is, is influenced by like needing to not repeat the same mistakes. Like it really fucks with him that he even got divorced once that he had a kid with someone that he didn't stay together with. He feels profound fucking enormous guilt and frustration about doing basically the same thing to Henry that his parents did to him. Um, right. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pretend I, I culminated this in, in like a, a bigger point. I do have, okay. There's one last thing. We didn't talk about it much, but there's a big fat long conversation around a dinner table um, between Jesse and Celine and like three other couples. One of them is a much younger couple um, who can talk about the experience of like what it's like to fall asleep Skyping with someone on your laptop, which is probably what Jesse and Celine would have been doing if, if they'd met in like 2006 or so, the, the, or, you know, 2012, 2011, whenever these kids got together, there's, 
slightly older couple and one of them is Jesse's friend. You know, the young couple has this like certainty and expectation that they will break up one day and that that's just what couples do because they've seen so many, I think they've seen their parents divorce. The older couple, they talk about how they have no expectations for each other because they know that they're not going to meet one another's needs. So they just, they just fuck a lot. Keep going. My laptop might die. I'm just. Mm -hmm. Oh shit. Um, Keep going. I got you. There is this, uh, there's just this certainty that, that these things don't work out. And when you see Jesse and Celine, when the younger couple says that, there's this moment of discomfort that you watch them, like, socially manage. Because they're in front of people, and, and they have to, like, they have to, like, give face at, at, at this, like, social dinner. But that seems like it really picks a scab for mm-hmm. for the two of them. Because they don't want to believe that. They don't want to believe that breaking up is just something couples do. They don't want to believe that every relationship has a life cycle. And that sometimes relationships get sick and they die. Um, but it seems to be nagging away at them. I don't think... The best thing about this movie is that it doesn't arrive on a decisive answer about whether or not that's true. The answer it arrives on is, yeah, maybe, but we're going to fucking try again. Because if we do hang on, there's a chance that we're going to have the fucking, like, we're, we're going to have the most fucking transcendent sex of our fucking lives with each other tonight. And, and maybe have more stories together that'll turn into another book. But, but this fear that relationships are not meant to pan out and last for good is something that haunts this movie. Um, in, in the same way that the, the finite quality of all time is, is also the things that give these movies their energy and their momentum. I'm worried I didn't talk long enough. Do y'all want me to keep... Go- I feel like I got um, I got some stuff in here. Um, I got a bit about airline food. Uh, I think the divorce... I think the divorce... I mean, I have not... Ex- I'm not a child of divorce. I'm a child of maybe... What should have been divorce. <laughs> Heard. Um, so yeah. I have a really complicated understanding of tea that's been steeped too long I think there's a difference between some couples it's these two particular people at the end of this that's so romantic right it's them it's them after all these kinds of conversations and the way that they can meet one another because there are definitely other movies where this exact same thing happens but the characters are totally different and you're like you motherfuckers should break up. (laughs) You know, like, you guys are being really mean to each other. This is bad. I didn't feel that way at all. Mm Because I think the movie is very clear in that it's not really about the other person. It's about the fears that they have about themselves and the way that that creates distance between each other. Um, So 
I felt this ability to sort of discern them from other unworthy, unworthy couples who should break up. <laughs> but, um, you know, who's to say? Maybe they should break up. Only they know. Mm-hmm. And, and only... Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Uh, just, I just think we are the only people who know what's best for ourselves, regardless of how it looks at, from the outside. Mm-hmm. And lovely. like, I, I I also think that you know the the basic nugget of the friction, which is that like neither of them can comprehend the or not comprehend might be the strong. Neither of them can like actually feel like the truth of any situation is that um there is no way to make a choice without feeling some kind of regret is like yes. so is mm. is so universal um and it's just sort of like what what you do with that which i don't know makes whatever happens happens that was like the most ill-phrased thing i've ever said no, no, no you well, said like, things way worse yeah, than that totally no that was actually really <laughs> You said way worse shit than that, dude. <laughs> no, that was beautiful. Keep going. Like, yeah, I and I'm I'm I think also part of the reason that uh, I I like I haven't talked that much this episode is also because this film provokes a profound and not bad like this is a feeling that I don't often get with media and I'm savoring the experience, but like a profound ambivalence. Like a real and true, um, I I just can I'm sort of just looking at this glass orb and I don't know what to do with it. Like I don't really have any particularly strong feelings on whether the whether the ending is like you know um, either the the beginning of them like just learning how to function better how to express their needs in a way that aren't like barbs or if this is just sort of like this portends like further grimness and perhaps disillusion i i don't know and i don't feel like i can't i i don't feel like i have the ability to sort of spin it out in my head and try to come to a take like all of the things in the movie feel like I was presented them and I observed them you know (laughs) but in a way that feels very special (laughs) yeah but I kind of know what you mean because it's almost like it's kind of like if you like went into someone else's house and listened to an argument it's like Mm. i am no real dog in this fight but it sure is happening and that's interesting it it feels like the um the the cockamamie idea that uh jesse has on the train in the first one it it feels like you know this is the public access reality show where you just like watch someone watch someone do life and like having observed a movie that like is pretty damn close to that like without the without the romance of the first two or the sort of like wide spanning um time frame of boyhood um like 
observing this movie in sort of like its own microcosm like i don't know what to make of it i like interesting what what it, it succeeded in making me feel was comprehension of it in a way that i don't often get with movies like no matter how much i like stuff a huge part of my brain is thinking about how much i like this how good the actors are doing um how much i can't wait to sort of like have takes on what goes down in the aftermath or what i think x and y really means or like what this particular shot seemed meant to provoke i don't really have any of that with this movie i think there is a lot of like realism and beauty to it and like i i i don't know what to make of it which i'm not sure the last movie i watched that i felt that way about where i'm just sort of presented with the the facts as they are you know do you feel like that potentially um do you feel like that is in any way a merit of its success or that it's yeah go get you go no i mean yes i i I think i mean well we've we've been talking for a a while and we don't have to get into this but like i i think this is my favorite one of the three Um, oh wow interesting there like there is uh something about this that like is is very remarkable um especially in the con in the context of having these two beautiful love stories and then getting like and then getting handed this like yeah. it's it's the bill for the best meal you've ever had you know yeah. Whoa. Oh, Dixon. Whoa. Dixon. Dixon. <laughs> I fucking killed it. Oh, I did so good. You oh, holy bitch. shit. Don't say you didn't feel it. That's something. <laughs> yeah, fuck. Um, I, I, this is my favorite holy of the three as shit. well. Um, and, and I just find it really interesting that your reaction is almost like, um, just raw observation of real humanity you know and like not knowing what that does though that's such a valid thing right sometimes people say things to us and i'm like i don't even know how i feel about Mm. that but it was momentous still i don't know that does happen so i like love your reaction that's so fascinating to me Um, yeah and and to be clear like that is a version of like me being swept away by it i don't want mm -hmm. i don't want anybody listening or y'all to think that i was like cold or detached in any way like i was in this with these motherfuckers yeah 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 i just my just my head's kind of spinning about it you know totally totally i think maybe we all either do or don't have our ways in on a personal level like for me i just really see so much of my own things about myself and and my mother <laughs> in Celine and um and be in in being a woman so it was like really interesting to sort of like watch my perspective be like moved out on the chessboard and then all the like counterattacks and being like okay valid no that's actually true as well <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it it was just really interesting to watch it on such a deeply personal level that I was like, I actually have no fucking idea how I'm going to talk about this in any way that isn't oversharing. <laughs> I was actually really, really worried. Um, 
but um wow it's good stuff no it was good stuff i love y'all i love y'all too i love y'all too here's here's some of the last stuff that i think is worth talking about with this movie um the big one is just the like the filmmaking um i i think sometimes people have like a knee-jerk dismissal or um resistance to or, or or like a prejudice against digital filmmaking and and digital cinematography um i mean one of the very first things we talked about on this show in spy kids two of all places was the ways that working digitally just in terms of of the way a day of filmmaking can go really frees up what you can do um this movie is shot digitally um the first two aren't they are shot gorgeously on 35 millimeter especially the second one just looks so lush and gorgeous and grainy and rich um but each movie also kind of has its own its own look in a way that I really appreciate. Three stills from the three movies will all look a little bit different next to each other. And I, I like that this movie went into the 21st century technologically with, with how it is made. I, I think that's extremely appropriate for that advancement to evolve with the characters, with the actors and the filmmakers. But it also kind of gives this movie this kind of cold, sort of a crispness to it. And, and, a, and a weird, unflinching, precise quality that I really felt in all of the hotel room scenes. Especially, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, when, when they're in the fight, a lot of the, the, the richest stuff in the before movies um, are in two shots. They're in, they're in these beautiful walk-and-talk two shots where they share a frame or they're talking to each other and you're getting over the shoulders. And so one person is always in a little bit of the other person's shot and they're close together. Um, but there there's a long stretch of this fight where they are on opposite ends of the room, the way it will sometimes happen in a fight. She's on the couch in the other room. He's sitting on the bed and won't get up. And they are filmed from very, very far away. There are There is one shot of Jesse that they keep coming back to, where he, he's tiny on the frame, on the bed, as they are yelling petty shit at each other. Or we're seeing Celine from his point of view, very like kind of far away, looking almost directly at the camera with these, these laser eyes looking right into the fucking lens in perfect digital clarity um it's weird it kind of reminded me of like late era david fincher cinematography um mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of like like weirdly of all things like the social network hmm. um i see what you're saying yeah of, of all things not not the comparison i thought i'd make it also lets you see into darkness and low light situations in ways that film sometimes can't. And it's, it's hard to imagine the, the final night exterior looking exactly the same way if it were shot on film. Um, there are, 
there there are some really really impressive moments of very present observant invisible filmmaking in in this movie i thought about the way there's um they have a great walk and talk through greek ruins that feels like quintessential before trilogy except they're talking about aging and if you met me on a train now would you ask me out um and or you know what's going to happen when one of us goes to the other's funeral which is kind of what i fear a fourth movie could be Mm -hmm. call it after celine i don't know um they're they're talking (laughs) 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 i thought about this and now you have to deal with it too that movie That's could happen. Fucked. Uh, <laughs> before heaven, I don't know. Um, <laughs> after midnight, I don't know. Um, Ooh, after yeah, that's good. Yeah, they're having this walk and talk that goes for like a really long time, and at one point, Celine notices some goats, and they say, "Oh, goats!" They keep walking. We get a little cutaway to the goats. Who knows, who knows if that was planned and they had to get a pickup shot of goats later. Ditto to a dog that's barking at them. It gives you this really crystal clear sense of place. Um, I just, I really, really love that the kind of movie that these three people are interested in making has evolved just as much as the, char- the wrinkles on the characters' faces have. Um, that they are willing to make a movie that is this uncomfortable and dark and challenging and adult where they will break the format, where they will have a dinner table scene with a bunch of other characters who we're not going to get to know all that well outside of that one conversation that Graham Reynolds' original score um, is, is taking place here, that they've made the kind of movie where a score is appropriate where in the first two that just wasn't an option. Um, I, re- I I heard that this movie was shot chronologically, which must have been really interesting for the actors. Um, <laughs> great examples of really good dialogue writing where, you know, I Katie Hughes taught a sitcom pilot writing class that was really formative for me. And in that class, she, she talked a lot about the idea of action as dialogue as action speaking is an action everything you say has an effect um that i think these movies demonstrate really really beautifully yes Mm -hmm. i also just thought about it, it would be remiss for us to do a dead horse series on these and for me to never bring this up but i kept thinking about this trilogy as a counterpoint to 50 shades of gray and also the Bridget Jones movies. I mean, those movies were really plagued by a question of how do you make a sequel to a romantic story and have it be interesting? In the case Mm -hmm. of the Fifty Shades of Grey movies, the answer is like, you gotta get like a guy with an eye patch and a gun to like kidnap someone. Um, Oh my God. And he's gotta have a Chronicles of Riddick poster or like in... (laughs) Bridget Jones, The Edge of Racism, there's uh, there's a line that she keeps saying um, 
what happens after Happily Ever After that I imagine... So corny to name it. It's it's corny to name it. That had to have been the author's pitch for... No, no, no. I'm going to make another one. I know it's a rom-com. You don't really make sequels. What about (laughs) after Happily Ever After? And someone went, that's all I need to hear. Here's your advance on writing it. Go off and, and have fun with all this money. And then, but you gotta do this to Hugh Grant's hair. <laughs> I will not give you sixteen million dollars unless you fuck that man's head up. I will not give you this money unless your movie is egregiously racist. Um, <laughs> the the thing that that movie gestured towards wanting to do is something that these movies have engaged in a very very serious adult way. Um, and 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 they've shown that like <coughs> bless, bless you. Thank you, sorry. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> they've they've demonstrated through the existence of sequels that a memory is never finished as long as you're alive, and that there is. You know, movies and novels are are finite and they have endings and maybe moments in your life feel like they do, but they kind of don't. It's 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 all this long continuum that keeps going and is full of surprises until you're worm food. And maybe some things like a movie series go on a little longer than they're supposed to until you're beating a dead horse. But sometimes you hang on and you keep fighting to see what's left. And sometimes your relationship with another person will throw you a honey for, you know? <laughs> um, maybe Go sticking off. around. I'm trying to tell you. And you know what? You know what? Our lives don't have a lot of gunfights or political intrigue or helicopter crashes. Um, but being alive and loving people and putting yourself out there and, and forming connections with other people for however long they last, you know, whether it's someone you meet at a bar that one night and you're never going to see him again, or it's the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with, you know, um, forging those connections is, is like this, this thing that makes that's like the thing you stay alive for. Um, and, you know, spy stuff, that's easy. But but being a family, having relationships, that's the mission worth fighting for. Spy stuff, that's easy. All right, we got to get Leprechaun in there. <laughs> Oh, you may. Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this may not be perfect, but it's real. <laughs> I have such guilt. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, Jesse. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> I don't love I, you anymore. <laughs> I understood why Sylvia Plath wanted to stick a head in a toaster. Blah! <laughs> um, 
Can I talk about something that's actually, like, a little heavy? I kind of wish I'd done this before I got all, like, brilliant on y'all. And humble, too. Um, (laughs) Did y'all see that this movie is dedicated to the memory of someone? I did not. Um, But I think I might know who. I bet you do. Um, I'm going to read this straight from the IMDb trivia. I'm not going to paraphrase it. Which is really good podcasting. You could only get this. <laughs> Where you if you if you just read the IMDB trivia, you're not gonna know what it sounds like for a woman who makes no effort to not sound like a man reading. Dedicated to the memory of Amy Lairhopt, the woman who was the inspiration for Before Sunrise. Richard Linklater had spent a night walking and talking around Philadelphia with her in 1989. Though initially they stayed in touch over the telephone, they lost contact eventually. In 1994, Linklater started shooting Before Sunrise, and when the world premiere was about to take place, Linklater was secretly hoping that Amy would show up and she did not. Ten years later, Linklater shot the sequel Before Sunset and had yet to hear from Amy. Finally, in 2010, a friend of Amy's who knew about their story contacted Linklater to tell him that Amy had died in a motorcycle accident on May 9th, 1994, at the age of 24, only a few weeks after, only a few weeks before he started shooting Before Sunrise, 1995. Both Linklater and Hawk were devastated, but found comfort in the inspiration for the Before trilogy devastating really Mm. really sad really 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 sad oh my god but you know what i mean i maybe just that's so sad that like any human animal like i i have to find a narrative in my head to click that into to make it make sense like my, my brain is doing the thing it does sometimes where i'm like Fuck, find a way to make this sentimental and romantic. Oh my god, find a way. Fuck. <laughs> but, like, they had one night together. They had a couple phone calls. They had one night. And that one night, she's not with us anymore. But that night didn't just live with him forever. It, it now lasts with, like, American cinema forever. Uh, Amy, Amy Laropt and the night she had with Richard Linklater just walking around shooting the shit maybe, maybe they hooked up we'll never know um, changed American cinema and, and, and the lives of anyone who watches these three movies and is changed forever by that in, in, in part because it seems like Linklater really understood that like these things are finite and and people aren't around forever and and the time that you get is like special and magical and 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 that itself kind of is what lives forever or you know at least at least as long as the people who remember it did um (laughs) everyone dies nothing is trivial art is everywhere um and hetero fighting (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a hetero fight (laughs) (laughs) 
We didn't um, even get into the gender stuff. I know we don't have time. It's fascinating. Yeah, I actually this is a did want to just say. Yeah. Yeah, and I did want to just say I, I did a lot of generalizations of men and women, and I do want to be clear that I do mean cis men and cis women, because that is a mm-hmm. really particular dynamic of two people who are just like vibing on the hormones that they are given you know yeah yeah like i just think there's something to that but i don't want to say that all women or all men act anyway like that that's not true but anecdotally i understand it and i see things about myself in it i just want to say that i i don't Mm. think that requires a huge addendum i mean i don't the people who made this movie really take for granted and why wouldn't they Um, that men and women are two completely fixed, separate entities that are just biologically away. Um, Julie Delpy herself is like extremely second wave feminist. I'm not, I'm not coming for them on that. That is their reality. That is their truth. That is their understanding of themselves and other people and of gender. And I, I, th- I think gender is real. I think womanhood and manhood are real and are often very separate from each other. And I think a lot of the dramatic tension comes from these two people are on like a gender sexuality level, like as opposite from each other as people can kind of be. And that's what makes it exciting when they come together and yeah. and, and where some of the tension comes from. There is There is an essentialism to this movie that maybe does not immediately answer the the reality of all the fucking pink and purple fucking gender freaks that I'm surrounded by in my ecosystem. Um, but I, I think it's very valid. And I think there is a lot of like profound universal insight and truth um, that can, that can come from it. And, and that, yeah. you know, that they really wrote Jesse to be like a man, a man, a man, and and Celine to be like a woman who's yeah. a woman who's a woman. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think that stuff is. I think it's interesting. Totally interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think that this is my favorite. And I'm so glad to have watched these and dissected them with y'all. And I really feel like something about me is different. Something about me as a filmmaker is buzzing differently. Oh, wow. My babies that I've been, like, nurturing in the recesses of my mind that I want to make as soon as I have about (laughs) $80,000. If they're not deeply influenced by this, you can strike me dead when my movie comes out. Oh, wow. Um, So, uh... Mark my words. <laughs> Marked. Um, real quick, uh, I just got an alert on Skype that said my internet uh, on Skype on Zoom that said my internet connection is unstable. Great. Um, so uh, should should That's... things go poorly? Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's telling us that so... time is finite. <laughs> it's telling us that the plane is coming. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, um, Becky, that's fucking beautiful. That is the best fucking gift that you could have given 
us and 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 me for having shared these movies with the two of y'all that's incredible mm. yeah. that's that's my favorite thing in the world and uh oh. and and we are we are lucky that one day we will get to see these things anyway yeah, um, do, you I have, do you have eighty thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> thought you'd never ask it's burning a hole in my pocket <laughs> i um JK, JK. i think i think i'm probably gonna rank it like leprechaun three don't um don't spy kids one um honey four um i for for me it's before sunset is my absolute favorite and then these two sit parallel to each other directly underneath it they are so profoundly different that i cannot rank them before sunset's your fave easy 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 Oh, I love that. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, uh, friend of the show, uh, Connor Scully, um, uh, when we told him we were doing these, he said um, we were discussing our rankings. Um, or you, I think uh, PJ, you and he were discussing your rankings because you had both uh, seen these before, and at the time uh, I hadn't. But um, I believe Connor put... Uh, sun rise is his first and you were like oh that's interesting um and connor said that sun set was his least favorite and you were like wow that's wild and wait because sorry pj did you say sunset is your favorite sunset the second one is my favorite yeah okay and that it's makes connor's sense. Least I, I, th- favorite. I thought you were saying yeah. sunrise and i was like that's so interesting based on our combo okay sorry i got mixed up keep going dixon okay, yeah connor was saying sunrise uh and um pj uh i'm you know paraphrasing the conversation you had so apologies but it uh builds <laughs> up to the point where i believe you said that's wild because sunset is my favorite and connor said that's fine. All of these movies are perfect and make me believe love is real. So, uh, like, I, yeah, it's I, facts. I, yeah, like I can't. I, I think there are perfectly reasonable avenues um, for any one of these movies to be anyone's particular favorite. I think mine's a straight three, two, one. Um, I, I, but all of them are within like you know point oh one five stars of each other on some like imaginary letterboxed thing i think i would have been shocked to hear that the third one's my favorite because of how much i was like gobsmacked by the second one but i think it's like the third one is only my favorite because the second one was there in the first place it was deepened by the ever like it's like they're my favorite so the last one's my favorite (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um was there ever a Dead Horse series we did where, like, 3, 2, 1 could be someone's ranking? Spy Kids. <laughs> Don't. Oh, wait, Leprechaun. Don't. Actually, Leprechaun. Yeah, sure. If, if we were restricting it to the first three entries, I don't think... Yeah. And I think... I... <laughs> Is the Before Trilogy the same as Leprechaun? (laughs) Yeah, in a lot of ways. About hetero Um, fighting. (laughs) Movies about Um, the fundamental differences between men and women. You know, women (laughs) sneeze and men dress up as women. (laughs) 
what is what is the woman in Leprechaun 2's name? I can't believe I forgot it. I want to keep calling her Celine, but that's not. Oh my god. Uh, uh, uh. Wait, what? Oh my god. The the woman in Leprechaun 2. What is her name? What's her name? Wait. Nah, we know her Bridget. fucking name. She Bridget. Bridget. Okay, oh. thank you. Thank you. I was gonna literally jump out my fucking apartment window if I could. Yeah, okay. no, I was no, in no way was going to end a season of Dead Horse not being able to remember fucking um, Bridget's name. I can't believe it. Um, Icon queen. All right, let's move, please. I love you both so much, though. <laughs> okay. So, um, anyway, we all agree half a star. Um, yes. Terrible. The first half hour is them driving in a car. I had to turn it off within a half an hour. <laughs> I, think, I think this person just within. hates cars. <laughs> You do not want to see their review of Cars 3. <laughs> the first two and a half hours are all outside of Cars. Um, okay, half a, uh, half a star. Wait, no, I closed, I closed out of the wrong fucking one. Um, cut this. No, I'm uh, keeping yes. it. Yes. <laughs> one star. Don't waste your money. The worldview and philosophy put forward in this movie is riddled with secular idiocy. <gasps> oh, okay. Came to play. Me They're like, its instead, bones. watch brothers fight in God's Not Dead 3. <laughs> and finally, and uh, I'm proud to leave off this season of Dead Horse with the following words. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We love you. <clears throat> we love you guys. We love you. I, You're probably fine. I don't know you. <laughs> Sonic is a movie theater, theater, theaters, movie, movie, theater, theater, movie, movie. <laughs> Half a star. <laughs> Cinema! <laughs> See, art Fire. is everywhere. See, Sonic is a movie theater, theater, theater. Movie, 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 movie. <laughs> You've ever wondered what uh, Dead Horse co-host PJ Audenzia says during sex? It's that. Movie, 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 movie. <laughs> movie, movie, Did you know? Did you know that? Did you know? The guy who did, did the music know? for... Hey, I know a fact. Daddy, I know a fact. Stop. (laughs) Did you know? (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Happy holidays, you motherfuckers. Dead Horse is, always was, and always will be Becky Granger, Dixon Cashwell, and PJ Audenzia. We'd like to thank Max Huffman for our podcast art, so go to his website, maxhuffman.com, check out his online store for prints, comics, and his original book, you know it, Cover Not Final. To keep updated with us, especially during our little hiatus, follow us on Instagram at at deadhorsepodcast, And if you enjoy this show, if you've stayed with this show, 
Give us a review on Apple Podcasts and let people know why. It's a huge help. We're going to be radio silent for a few months while we get ready for season three, but it won't be too long before we're back. Um, Take care of each other. And if you ever get too down in the dumps, just remember, the actor who played Mr. Belvedere on TV's Mr. Belvedere once went commando in sweatpants at a table read and accidentally sat down on his own balls and screamed until the lights shook and had to be carried away on a stretcher. Just remember that. Okay, deuces. (laughs) 